0: Turn in your Bibles to Exodus. Uh, If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers in the back will give you one. Exodus chapter uh, 13, Uh, uh, verse 17 is where we're going to begin today. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. And actually, uh, I'm going to start reading in chapter 14, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Then... The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Harathon, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is it that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them at, encamped at the sea by, by, by Harathon, in front of baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold... The Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you done this to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation the Lord uh, of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Father, we ask that as we dive into this text this morning, and as we see that you indeed fight for us, that you fight for our good, that you fight for your glory, we, we, we ask that you help us to fear not, that we might stand firm on your word. God, enlighten us today as we study this text. Speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Does anybody remember uh, what it was like to to not have a GPS? Anybody as old as I am in this room? Okay. Do you remember MapQuest? (laughs) Do you really? What's it like these days? I hear it's nice, actually. Some updates. Well, I remember uh, when I first moved to Baltimore, getting lost, uh, turned around in the Pikesville area. And I just had no clue where I was. And so I stopped into a gas station, and I asked for directions. Do you remember when we used to have to do this? And uh, I asked for, asked for directions, and I looked at a map, and I was confused at the map. I didn't even know where I was. And so the guy gave me directions on how to get back to uh, where I needed to go. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. Like, these directions he's giving me are ridiculous. <laughs> like, I know he's sending me You know, to California or something like that. Like, he's not sending me in the direction I need to go. Well, I want to talk to you today on the theme when God's ways seem ridiculous. When God's ways, when his directions, when his word, when they just seem ridiculous. We use our own logic and we kind of think about it and we think, this is ridiculous the way that He's sending me right now, the way that His Word is instructing me right now, the, the, the ways, the, His will that is, that is happening in my life, this doesn't make any sense. And this is not taking me where I think I should be going. Ridiculous. Where We, 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 uh, we pick up in our story here. With Israel now freed from slavery in Egypt. And before the ridiculousness begins, uh, the story actually starts on a, on a very high note. All right, so let's just kind of d- jump into the, the narrative together. Israel is freed from slavery, they've been kicked out of Egypt, all right? The Passover. They're on the move. And Israel is being led by God. We see this in chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, that God is leading them in verse 21. In particular, we see that this isn't just simply a metaphor, but this is actually a manifestation of God in a cloud and in fire at nighttime. During the day, God is manifesting His own presence and, and power and protection to the people of Israel through a cloud. And at night, he's manifesting uh, his presence through fire. Now, uh, at some point toward the end of the story, at the end of the story, the cloud is going to settle on the tabernacle, and there God's presence will Rest, but for now, uh, the people follow the cloud, just like a well trained canine following every step of his master. If the cloud moves, the people move. This is all they have now as a freed people of former slaves. They don't know where they're going, they know their ultimate destination, the promised land, but how they're going to get, to get there is a whole nother story. And so part two of this narrative, this epic story of Exodus, begins with this high note of God leading His people through a cloud and fire. And in the same way, God leads us today, not through a cloud and fire, but He leads us nonetheless through His Word. Psalm 119 Verse one hundred five, your word is a lamp. It's 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 fire, it's light unto my path. I I I read your word and I determine where I need to go. John chapter one, verse one. The word became what? Flesh. And the word was Christ. John eight, verse twelve, Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. The Word incarnate, Christ, our leader. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God spoke in the past in many ways to our ancestors. But in the last days, God spoke to us through His Son. Jesus spoke, and His words were the very words of God. And those words of His that were recorded is what we call Scripture. And Jesus then sent the Holy Spirit to speak His Word through the apostles and they wrote uh, what we call Scripture today. And, 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 and this becomes for us then our light. This becomes our lamp. The Word leads us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All of Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. And it's profitable for every aspect of of life, So our story begins on a high note as well. God is leading us today through his word. As we study his word and as we live our lives that are shaped around his word, God is leading us. Yet at the same time, if we are a people who shape our lives around the word, we know that there are many dark notes that quickly follow. If you're someone who lives your life shaped around the worldview of Scripture, you know that there are times when, when, when God's word just simply seems ridiculous. And you're going to lose if you continue to follow God's word in this particular situation. Or maybe it's nothing to do with His Word in particular, but it's, it's uh, an aspect of His will, something that God is taking you through right now, uh, something that you're facing right now, and you're thinking to yourself, God is sovereign, God's will is being played out, and this is what I'm facing, this doesn't make any sense. This seems ridiculous. What do we do when God's ways seem ridiculous? What do we do when His Word seems ridiculous? What do we do when His direction for our lives seems ridiculous? Well, the Israelites, their first response was fear. In chapter 14, verse 1, the Word, the ridiculous Word of God comes. Tell the people to turn back. Now, why is that ridiculous? Well, let me tell you why there are two ways out of Egypt. There is the short way to to, to the promised land and there is the long way. God chose to take Israel the long way. Problem number one. So Israel, I wish I could show you on a map, but Israel is heading north. Egypt's over here. Canaan land, the promised land, is, is way up north over this direction. That's the way that they're heading. Yet, God says, No, I want you to turn back and head south. South, south, that's the Red Sea. South. So we have Egypt over here, the Red Sea right here, and freedom this direction. And God says, No, I want you to head this way toward the sea. And this gets even worse because we see in uh, verse 4 that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And God says, And by the way, he's going to pursue you. So I'm sending you south toward the sea, and I'm sending Pharaoh and all of his armies, all right, 600 chosen chariots, that's like the CIA of, of, of uh, Egypt, as well as all the other chariots. So this is like the CIA and all of the military going after this slave people. That's ridiculous. Why would God send us toward the sea when Egypt is coming that, dir- that direction? What do we do? Well, like I say, they freaked out. In verse 11, they cry out to Moses and they say, is this seriously <laughs> what you've called us to? This is what you've freed us for? Oh, oh I see, Moses. They're getting sarcastic. I see you brought us out here because there's no graves in in Egypt. You brought us out here because there's more, more burial space for all of us. I see what you're doing. And then they say, look, this is what we were saying to you all along, Moses. Leave us alone. We never asked for this. We never asked for freedom. We were happy living as slaves. You know, it's amazing how quickly... Uh, we, when faced with times of persecution, when faced with challenges, when faced, faced with situations that seem ridiculous, it's amazing how quickly uh, we, 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 we lie to ourselves about our former lives. It's amazing how, how nice slavery to sin all of a sudden looks when we are faced uh, with, with a very difficult situation. It's amazing how quickly we turn back to our old habits and our old temptations and our old addictions to deal with the challenges that came in life. God has been moving in your life and He's he's grown you in many ways and now you're faced with a hardship and you're running back to Egypt because you think life was better there. It was better there. The routines of Egypt were better than not knowing what the future holds. The comforts, quote-unquote, of slavery. Oh, that was better than being out here all alone trusting in God. Back in my former life, when I knew exactly how everything was going to happen, there weren't any question marks around my life, that was better than throwing myself into the mercies of God. So Israel freaks out, to put, it, to put it nicely. So what is our response? When things get hard. When God's ways seem ridiculous. Let me give you my whole sermon in, in one sentence. This, this is it. And this is what the people of Israel are going to find out. God fights for your good. And God fights for His glory. All right? So since, that's a big since right there. Since God fights for your good and for His glory, therefore, fear not. Stand firm and watch God do His thing fear not stand firm and watch what god is about to do let's get into it first god fights for your good god fights for your good look at chapter 13 verse 17 we everybody say oh Actually, don't say that yet. Hold that, because I haven't read the verse yet. This is like a big aha moment. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now on cue, everybody. Oh, I see why God did what he did. They didn't see it, but God has shown us why he did what he did. Why is it that God didn't give Israel the direct quick route out of Egypt? Why, isn't he did, why is it that he didn't take them up and around the Red Sea? It's because the Philistines were over there. And while that made sense in Israel's mind, God knew that as soon as they saw the Philistines, they weren't yet ready for that battle. And he knew that as soon as they get into this kind of battle, and by the way, beyond the Philistines are the Amorites... And, and the Amalekites, and, and the city of Jericho, and I could go on and on and on. There are battles that, I, that Israel is going to fight, but they're not yet ready for this one. And God knows that if He puts them into this battle too soon, and too early, they're going to run right back to slavery. And so God then, in doing something that is strange, That doesn't make sense in our own logic. Our our own human way of thinking. It doesn't make any sense. Why is it that God would send me this direction and not that direction? It's because God is protecting you from a battle that He knows will send you back to slavery. And so he's rerouting them and he's sending them down by the sea. This is the point I'm trying to chase after here. God is fighting for their good. Israel, I mean, we can see their response. Do they think that this is for their good? Does it feel like this is for their good? What are we supposed supposed to judge? Our own feelings of what God is doing in our life? Or are we supposed to trust the Creator and the Savior? Their call is just that. It's to trust the Creator and the Savior. God is fighting for their good. Friends, you have no clue what kind of battles that God might be sparing you from. Why is it that God won't allow me to have this now? Why is it? that God won't, won't allow me to, to have this certain kind of impact or this certain kind of ministry or a certain kind of influence that I think I would steward well and use for His glory? Or, or why is it that He won't let me have a certain kind of uh, uh, influence in the in my career or at work so that I might, again, use it not for my glory, but for His glory? I mean, with, with good motivations. There's good things that we want to get our hands into. Even as a church, there's, there's ministries that we want to be part of. Why isn't God, God, why isn't that You don't allow us to have a deeper impact and a greater impact and a wider impact, what if, what if God, single folks, what if God were to call you to a life of singlehood? What if, what if, what if that, that was God's will for your life? Can you trust that it's for your good? What if God were to call you to what feels, for all of us, it, it feels like a life of, of uh, insignificance? We're not really making an impact in, in some, some realm according to the ways that we think we should be making an impact. What if God is protecting you from something that you know nothing of? I mean, I could go on with illustrations and examples. But God is leading all of us in some ridiculous ways. Are we going to trust that God is for our good. Listen, there are going to be battles that Israel fights. God is going to lead them to this place where they are going, God is going to fight through them. But before God fights through them, Israel needs to know that God is going to fight for them. Israel isn't ready for the battle yet. And you're not ready for that battle yet. God is protecting you and preserving you, and God is preparing you for something that you might know nothing of. God fights for your glory. Secondly, God fights, or I'm sorry, God fights for your good. Secondly, God fights for his glory. We see this in the text as well. Look at verse uh, verse four. I'm going to do these things and I'm going to, he says, get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 18. God repeats it I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots, even the CIA of Egypt and, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Listen, God is fighting for His own glory. God is leading Israel into the very place uh, what, what my, my mother would call a, between a rock and a hard place, right? He's leading Israel to a place where on one side are the entire Egyptian armies coming at them. 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots. And they've got their backs up against the Red Sea. God is leading them to a place in which He will be most glorified. Look, the more salvation belongs to the Lord, the more God gets the glory. Ephesians chapter. Uh, 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 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God is leading Israel out of Egypt not by their own doing. At all. At all. No words that Israel is going to be able to boast of. No, they're never going to be able to sit back and, and, and tell their kids this story of how, man, we got into a big argument about the, the best strategy out of here, and, and I wanted to go that way, and, and Billy wanted to go that way, and John wanted to go that way. And, then, and I, I said, no, look, look, look at the map. This is where Egypt is at. This is where they're coming. And, and I figured out the best strategy out of Egypt. Nobody can do that with Israel. Nobody can take glory for this. Nobody can take glory for their salvation. God stuck them in a place where only He can deliver. This is going to take a miracle. God fights for your good and for His glory. Now listen, if you are a Christian, you have, an, you have experienced a miracle. God opened your eyes to the Gospel of Jesus Christ not by your own doing. He granted you the gift of faith and He brought you through the waters of judgment and He brought you into salvation. Why is it that now that you are saved, you are part of Christ, you're one of His, why is it that God fighting for His own glory is good news for you? Well, here's why. Because you are His people that He has saved. And if if His people are ultimately defeated, then God will not get the glory. So God places His people into situations where He has to deliver them and redeem them and show the world then through them that He is indeed a glorious God. So God getting His own glory is a good thing for you. God is God centered. And God has brought us into his own story. And his God centeredness redeems us for his glory. God fights for your good, and God fights for his glory. All right? That's our foundation right there that we see in this text. So now we're still dealing with Israel over here trembling. We're still dealing with this issue of Israel saying, what's going on? Why have you brought us out here? There's more burial space out here, I guess. We never wanted anything to do with you, Moses. And on and on they go. And some of you are the same way questioning God, complaining to God, not happy with with His Word, not happy with what He's called you to in His Word, taking some convictions and some stances that you're not comfortable with, not happy with the situations that He has brought you to in life, and you're questioning Him. And you're angry. And maybe you're blaming it on a Moses. Someone who was discipling you. Showing you these things. What do we do when we're in this situation? Moses, in response to the people of Israel and their complaining and their, 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 their uh, fear, he gives them three imperatives. Knowing all that we know, that God fights for you, that God fights for His glory, three must-dos people. Look at verse 13. We see them right there. Moses said to the people, First, Fear not. Fear not. Do you know that do not fear? Do not fear is the most repeated commandment in the whole Bible. More than any other command in Scripture. Do not fear. You know, uh, a couple years ago, I remember that One night, my wife woke me up and... uh, (laughs) I guess she didn't want me to tell this story. She she woke me up and she said she heard something downstairs. And, uh, you know, I'm not one to be woken up in the middle of the night. Like, it really takes a long time for me to wake up. And I mumbled... uh, about to sleep. She's like, Joel, I heard something downstairs. I'm like, go see what it is then. <laughs> Would you believe she made me get out of bed? <clears throat> so <laughs> she did. So uh, like a terrible husband, I complained and I guess like a good husband and got out of bed. And I walked downstairs to see if, if we had an intruder. Now, we didn't. But why is it that my wife wanted, to go, wanted me to go with her? It's because she knew that I would beat up whoever it was that, in, that came into our home. She knew what these guns were like. Now, I can't beat up everybody. All right, but I could beat you up if you come into my home. I guarantee you. Look, but even as humans, uh, we we can't always protect one another. Yet even still, there's a sense in which our fears are reduced when we have somebody go with us. Right? Now think of it this way. The God of this world, the Creator God, the all-powerful God is uh, going with us into battle. God cannot be defeated. God has serious guns, if you would. He cannot be defeated and he's going in to battle with us. And by the way, the greatest battle of all has been accomplished. Think of it, friends, this way. All right, Noah, in the story of the Bible, Noah goes through the waters of uh, judgment and God saves him through the waters, correct? Now we see Israel going through the waters. And God is saving them through the waters of judgment, right? Jesus Himself passed through the waters of sin and death. The greatest sea, and the sea, by the way, in the, uh, the ancient world represented death. The greatest sea ever was a sea that Jesus went into for us. When Jesus died on the cross, He took your death your judgment, on Himself. He hung for your sins on the tree and He died. And by the way, the the waters didn't keep Him. But He came out the other side. And He's now standing on the shore and He looks over and He says, all who want salvation, come to Me. And find it. Find life. I am life. I've passed through the waters of death and all who are in Christ will too have the promise of passing through the waters of death and one day we will rise again with Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful promise. What is the greatest thing that anybody can ever do to us that is kill us? The greatest thing any intruder could ever do to you is kill you. And the Christian says, "And uh, so what? The greatest thing you can do to me is kill me. And then what? Then I rise. And I live forever with Jesus Christ, my Savior. You see, since Jesus has destroyed the fear of death, the greatest fear of all, not just physical death, but eternal death, under the judgment of God for our sins, And all who trust in Him are forgiven of their sins and have the promise that they too will be raised and forever embraced by God, not by their own works of righteousness, but because of His work for them on the cross. When we have that kind of faith, we have no reason to fear. Amen? Because God is going with us into every battle in this life, and the last battle every single one of us will face, He will walk with us through that battle and He will raise us up from the dead. So, do not fear. When God's ways seem ridiculous, He's leading you into some scary circumstances. If you take this conviction, you might lose your job. If you continue to embrace the the, the Scriptures in this way, you're not going to have, have some temporal enjoyment in life. If you don't go back to your addiction, you don't know how you're going to cope. Fear not. Secondly, stand firm. Verse 13, he says to the people, Fear not and stand firm. Stand firm. That word stand right there in the Hebrew indicates this idea of standing before a judge or entering into a, uh, the bench where you're going to give testimony. It's essentially not a passive standing of just like wherever I happen to be, but sort of an active standing uh, as a representative for where I am. Does that make sense? We're not just passively standing by uh, and a little sheepish, but rather we are actively uh, waking up to the reality that we must take the stand. We must present ourselves. This is who I am. This is what happened this morning with baptism. It's a standing firm. It's, saying, it's a declaration. It's saying, this is who I am. This is my identity. Stand firm. Don't go anywhere. Imagine you walked into a great hall and there was a red dot on the middle of the floor. And the, 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 the owner of the place told everybody to stand on the red dot. Don't leave the red dot. So you go and you stand on the red dot and uh, you notice that there's food on tables, beautiful food, all, all around the room. And, uh, and you, you also realize that you're the only one standing on the red dot. Everybody else seems to be enjoying themselves. There's like some chocolate delicacies over there. Some coffee for the coffee lovers. Alright, hot chocolate for the rest of you all. People are enjoying themselves. And nobody's, everybody seems to be fine. But then a moment later, the entire floor drops 200 feet and everybody falls to their death and only those standing on the red dot remain and that is you. Stand there. Don't go anywhere. There are temptations all around you. The, 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 it looks firm. It looks like people are having a good time. But stand here. Don't move. Because here is salvation. That's just somewhat of a a little example of the picture that I get in my mind when I think of what it means to stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our firm foundation. He is the only foundation that will last beyond death and for all of eternity. And friends, if you are not standing on salvation in Jesus Christ right now, you have no hope. The ground is about to fall. What are you standing on? And I think even if you're not a Christian here, I want you just to wrestle with this for a second. We're all standing on something. You've got to be standing on something. What is it? What I'm asking you, what I'm uh, pleading uh, with you toward is to stand on that which has conquered death. Death. To stand on that which has risen the other side of the sea. To stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and don't, don't leave there. We come from a long line of, of people who have stood firm. In the second century, a man named Polycarp was faced with lions. And he was, it, was, it was commanded of him... to to recant. And this this Middle Eastern man looking at the lions did not recant his faith. He stood firm on the only foundation that he had as the lions tore him apart. In the 4th century, an African named Athanasius stood firm for the divinity of Jesus Christ. The reason that we recite the Nicene Creed, that's because of this man named Athanasius. The way that God used him. And he would not let the divinity of Christ go. He said, no, Jesus is fully God. And he is fully man. And he won the day that day uh, in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. But a couple years later, Rome turned against him. Popular opinion swung to the other side. It was no longer cool and popular uh, to say that Jesus was indeed God. And they sought his death. And Athanasius stood firm. He did not waver as he ran for his own life. In the 16th century, a man named Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms in Germany. And he was asked to recount all of the books and all of his writings which proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and that there is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if you do not recant, you will die. And he stood firm Stand firm. Don't run from this. Let me give you a more modern day example. Uh, one of our, the, the largest denominations in the world, which is the denomination that we happen to be part of, was uh, for years walking away from the authority of Scripture. For years denying the authority of Scripture. For years, uh, giving into uh, culture—if we're not standing on the Scripture, we're standing with culture, and we just kind of sway with culture. And if culture goes this way, we go that way. And if culture goes back this way, we go this way. Whatever's popular in culture is what's popular with us, right? No, but this is the way the denomination was 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 heading, and the the Scriptures were uh, being denied in many ways. And in 1993, there was a man named Albert Moeller who took the presidency of the flagship seminary for this denomination. And uh, he was 33 years old, a young man, and he uh, stood behind an old podium in the seminary chapel and he delivered a sermon that would change the course for this seminary as well as the entire denomination. And his sermon was called, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Don't just do something. Don't just be about activism. Don't just go about doing stuff. Busyness. Stand on something. Have some convictions. Stand there. Stand where? On the Word of God. On Jesus Christ. Our only hope. As the Word has communicated to us. Where are you standing? What alternatives did Israel have? I mean, think of it in, in their own context right here. Here they are. Red Sea. Egypt coming. They could have run. They could have gone back north. We're going to take matters into our own hands. What would they have lost? They would have ran from the promises of God. This God who has delivered them. Who has given them promises through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would have ran from the promises of God. They would have, have, have ran from the presence of God. Here is the cloud. Here is the fire. We're going this way. They would have ran from the protection of God. Now they're on their own. Listen, friends. The Holy Spirit will not empower any life that is not standing on the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will not empower any life that is running on its own. Stand firm. Now the third imperative is actually completely passive. He says, see. The salvation of the Lord. So Israel's job is to fear not, stand firm, and then just sit back and watch. And the Hebrew word there, it means see. Just open your eyes. Look at it. Watch. Sit back on your easy chair and watch what God is about to do. Final deliverance happens in three phases. Egypt is coming and in phase one, God moves, the the, the cloud and the fire moves between uh, Egypt and Israel in verse 19 and 20. And so now Egypt can no longer see Israel. They don't know what's happening. It's a whirlwind of smoke, a whirlwind of fire that's standing in front of them, and they are blocked now from the sight of Israel. The second phase of final redemption here in verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the Red Sea. And it says the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. This is not just some kind of natural occurrence. This is a supernatural act of God in which in chapter 15, this hymn of praise, we, we, we see that these, these two sides became as walls. Indicating not just simply a a barrier or a small stone wall, but city walls. Walls of water the size of a city. And they walk across on dry ground. Now, at some point, the the manifestation of God in the cloud and fire moves. The Egyptians uh, see what's happening. They see Israel crossing and Pharaoh says, go get them boys. And so Egypt comes into the the, the sea and is now chasing after Israel through the sea. This is in some ways the climax of the story. What's going to happen? Will God ultimately have the victory? Or will Egypt make it across and have the victory over God? Verses 25, 26 through 29, we see that, At first, the the wheels of the chariots get clogged. All of a sudden, it's not dry ground, but it becomes muddy. And as these wheels are clogged and, and they're hard to move, they're not moving anywhere, they say, flee! Get out of here! Retreat! For God fights for them! And now they're trying to run, but before they can get out, the sea crashes back Together and God gets a final victory over Egypt, and that is a victory over the entire Egyptian army. God completely annihilates the enemy because God fights for his people, for their good, and for his glory. We are called. to to sit back and watch the deliverance of God. You don't know why God brought you into the place that He's brought you. Your call is to fear not, to stand firm, and then just watch God deliver. Fear not. Stand firm and watch God give you the ability to persevere in your faith. Stand back. or Fear not. Do not stand back. Fear not. Stand firm. And watch God give you the ability to resist temptation. Fear not. Stand firm. And watch God destroy your enemies. And we we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You see, all of these things were signs for us. Types, metaphors. The greatest fight that we have is the fight against sin and death fear not stand firm and watch you know sometimes man's directions will actually end up leading you into a wrong place god his direction his ways his word his will even though they might seem ridiculous they never really are ridiculous God is a perfect God. He knows exactly what He's doing in your life in this very moment. Will you trust Him? Will you trust first Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And will you trust that He will use every second of your life to get you home to glory? I love chapter 15. Chapter 15 is really, it's just a song of praise. It's it's the first recorded hymn in the Bible. I, I wish we knew the tune. I actually tried to come up with a tune this week. I thought maybe we could do a new song. I don't think so. This would be a tough one. But I want you to read it later. Maybe just like choose a note and just sing it later to yourself on one note. God is a warrior God. And we should praise Him. They sing this hymn to one another and then, then Miriam, the sister of Aaron at the end there, she, she picks up in verse 21, she picks up uh, the, 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 the chorus and she turns to the women and she teaches the women this, this chorus and all the women are singing together and they have tambourines and they're dancing. They're having this time of praise. It's this beautiful, wondrous moment in Egypt as they have just seen God finally, ultimately deliver them from slavery. He has victory over their enemies and they can only praise Him. What is our response as we come and we enter into the magnitude of who this God is? As we recognize that God is always for you, that He's for your good, that He's for His glory. And so therefore, we can fear not and we can stand firm on His Word and we can just simply watch Him get victory over our spiritual enemies of sin and death and open the waters, part the waters. Your job is to fear not and stand firm. His job is to open up the sea for you. When we encounter this God, what is our response? It's to pick up a tambourine and it is to praise Him and to sing praises, to dance. If you don't like the sound of tambourines and praises and dancing, learn to like it before you get to heaven. Because it is going to be one final celebration of praise to this God who brings us across the sea on dry land. Let's pray together, and then let's praise Him. Father, we thank You for this This wonderful story that You have recorded for us, but the the fact is it's not just merely a story, but this is Your living Word that is for us. We thank You, God, that You have indeed saved us with Your strong arm, with Your mighty hand. We thank You for the fact that You are for our good and that You are for Your glory. And we thank You for the fact that we actually can fear not, that we can stand firm because You are the Deliverer. Let us see Your deliverance this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.